you're working in digital pathology, you know, or at least you've heard that the research application of digital pathology, they're not really regulated or very slightly regulated, whereas the clinical application part, the clinical use of digital pathology is strictly regulated and you don't have any wiggle room there. But there is this space in between called translational research or translational medicine, the place where the research meets medicine. So you can ask yourself, how do I approach it from the regulatory perspective? Do I have all the freedom from research or do I have to strictly obey the regulatory guidance on the clinical side? Today, my podcast guest is going to answer this question. Learn about the newest digital pathology trends in science and industry, meet the most interesting people in the niche, and gain insights relevant to your own projects. Here is where pathology meets computer science. You are listening to the Digital Pathology Podcast with your host, Dr. Alexandra Zhurov. Today, my episode guest is Esther Abels, the regulatory expert in digital pathology. For me, she's the person that brought digital pathology to the eyes of the FDA, and we're going to be talking about the translational aspect and use of digital pathology in translational research. But Esther is not only a regulatory expert, she's also a female leader in the digital pathology space. That's why I invited her for March episode to celebrate the International Women's Day. So without further, let's dive into it. Welcome Digital Pathology Trailblazers. Esther is definitely a female digital pathology leader. So I'm going to start, Esther, with the most famous things that you did. I mean, you were part of different digital pathology companies. But one thing that I will always remember you for, you are the person who brought digital pathology to the FDA with the first Philips clearance of the whole slide scanner. And the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that you are the immediate past president of the Digital Pathology Association, a female president, not the first because there were already female presidents, or at least one, I know Dr. Bui was. And we're going to circle back to this experience as a female leader in digital pathology later in the podcast episode. But now tell the listeners about you and who you are and what you do. Give a little intro to yourself. Thanks, Alex, and thanks for having me. And you might remind me for the Philips scanner, that was the first one brought to the attention of the FDA getting the clearance. But I also want to highlight that's, of course, a team effort. And it's something that we did as a team. We collaborated also with competitors, also with the Digital Pathology Association. And that contributed that we got this accomplished. But a little bit more background about myself. I studied biomedical health sciences because already at a young age, I really was interested in prevention of diseases. I was always thinking, like, why would you wait till you have symptoms if you can prevent a disease, right? And education in this part is very very important. And I recall that one of the colleges I went to is that we were talking about pathology and it impressed me so much. I recall that really inspired me because that really showed me how a body has a kind of balance, like how it keeps itself in balance. Having said that, I also became very interested to help patients. Of course, you want to prevent diseases, but when you see the suffering and also that there is medication available to help patients, I became very interested in that as well. So that's also how I started. I started in pharma, working on clinical development of 
pharmaceutical therapies. I was accountable for registration studies of drugs to bring them to market globally, as well as proof concept studies. So that's actually how do you take into account everything that you develop in the pipeline of a drug, right? You think about ethics, you think about formulation. Is it safe? Is it effective? Is it also feasible to have that accepted in a certain country? For example, we worked on opioids. We all know that that is difficult to get on the market in the US. So we took that all into account when developing our drugs. From that, I went to medical devices because I realized like, okay, when you have a good drug, if you really want to make it work, you always need to have a good diagnosis. So those go hand in hand. So I wanted to learn more about that. And that's why I started that medical device company. And first, what we needed was develop the scanner so that you can start using the images and all the data that you collect with it to really start building a foundation, a database, start clustering data and identify maybe new signatures, new features that can help finding new targets in the human body to be attacked, so to say, by the drug. That's something that I'm working on right now as well. And what I really like about it is also not thinking only about the technology, but think beyond that. Because we have great technology, but what does it help us if there's no clinical utility? What does it help us if you cannot bring it to the patient? So I think you really have to think about like, okay, this is the technology, great, it's cool. But then take the next step. What does it do? Does it really help patients? Does it bring value to the healthcare provider who has to use it? That's actually what I enjoy a lot, combining those four assets from regulatory, clinical, quality, and pharma, and the medical device, and use that to help bringing innovations to patients. I have my recent guests were really the personification of the bridge in digital pathology, incorporating experiences and education from different fields. And you also are uniquely positioned to talk to so many people that are involved. Like you emphasize, it's a team effort, but you need to be able to talk to everybody in the team so that everybody is on the same page. And in your background, I definitely see this vast amount of experience and training. The technology can be cool. Research, you know, you can discover cool stuff, but what does it even help us if we cannot bring it to the patient? That brings me to the main topic of this episode, translational research. How do you translate those cool technologies into something that's clinically usable? What is translational research first? And the second thing, how do you bridge this? How do you use those insights later for patients? And you're going to be talking about this at the Tricon conference in March, but let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so what is translation medicine? I would say you involve a lot of science. You use whatever you do in research and in discovery. Use that science, use the evidence that you create there to build a foundation to also see like, okay, how can we now use this, what we have collected, to target a kind of a disease and apply it also into clinical practice. So it's really like, how can we ensure what we discover in research outside the human body or using like digital tools or using anything else what you use in the lab environment for example but then determine how can you use it and apply it what you have discovered using the science and the evidence facts to apply that in clinic so that is how mm -hmm. i would like to translate it and then bringing it to your question can you apply digital pathology how to do that and also what i'm discussing in detail tricom on march 7th let me start off with this what you see there's a trend of course in in the digital health and in personal healthcare. That's what we see. And we see that medicine 
medicine is changing rapidly because of this. And it's not only drugs and digital, but it's also related to budget, reimbursement, workforce, those kind of things. Speaking about reimbursement, I did forget mention that we already had a podcast episode together, yeah. and this is where we were talking about that. So if anybody's interested, I'm leaving the other episode with Esther in the show notes. So go ahead and listen to that one as well. Uh, yeah, that was a good episode as well. I enjoyed it. I enjoy always your questions. So thanks. Going back to that, an increasing demand also for the personal treatments, personal health care. There's also an increasing demand based on that on health care itself. And so that means that there is a higher workload, but also that we need to ensure that the paths are going to be shortened, the paths to bring it to a patient. It's not only the development, but also the usage of that. So how can a healthcare provider get easy use? I give a few examples. There will be much more, but what I think, what is the needs right now in drug and, and also in the tools. I think what is needed is that we're going to develop this cool technology that we're using that accompanies the disease itself and already early onwards and that we then can advance those certain diagnostic tools or other tools to help that. So with that, you're creating efficiency gains and you can already show very early on with science that there is effectiveness. And that's also being used by, if you look back at, at the COVID, right? There was already earlier on animal data for example, that has been used to gather evidence that was used to mine that, to use digitization, to do simulation, computer models. Those kind of things have been used to accelerate the development and the safety and effectiveness testing. Because usually you would have taken much more data, much more testing in the lab and in, in patients than what was done now because of that digitization, because we live in this era. And I think that's also where I see the areas of growth for digital pathology and also for medicine. I believe that we can expedite that development pipeline for both by using digitization. We can now by using algorithms, by using AI, we can start clustering data. And I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but what I see is that there are certain diseases which certainly have a common denominator. And with pathology, for example, they do have that in the phenotype expression. And that can be morphological, it can be things that we cannot see with the eye and also using a microscope. Our spatial biology, for example, it can be a combination of that. And then people always also think about, might it be with other omics? Yes, absolutely. Might it be with other patient data? Like we start clustering, for example, geographies, food patterns, all those kind of things. And that's where I believe that pathology is one of the last areas in medicine that is becoming digital. And that's not for a reason. We all know how difficult it is with pathology. Not saying that the other ones are not complex, but pathology is just different than radiology or genomics. That is something that we can really tap into and that potential next to that by using that already early onwards to discover new targets. You can also use it to expedite that, to use digital pathology to expedite to go to a new target because everything what you do in pathology, you can do digital, but digital can go much faster than what a human can do if you use it in the right way. So therefore, I believe that's an opportunity 
opportunity for digital as well. And then there's another opportunity in digital with using it in the clinical development itself with clinical trials. You can automate so many processes. You can also, what I believe and is that you can easier identify the patients that should be recruited in your study. You can have more precision, you can standardize, you can harmonize. And with that, you can decrease your patient's sample size, for example. And with that, you're enriching your patient pool. As such, you need less number needed to treat and you go faster to your drug developments. Plus, you might also have earlier failure rates. And that's something that we also want to know because you want to kill your drug early if it doesn't work or if it's not safe. There I see in the entire pipeline, I see advantages also in pathology itself. You can use digital pathology to optimize your own pathology tools within your lab. You can help to develop medical device development tools, for example. And that's something I know that the FDA is doing at the moment at their own labs. I believe there are oh, many are opportunities. They? Yes. What are they doing, Esther? Do you have any insights? Yeah, I so... Need to, I need to have somebody from the <laughs> FDA to talk about it. But if you have any insights, let us know what they're doing. Yeah, on a high level, because I'm not involved that much anymore. In the beginning, I was involved with reviewing the protocol and the studies. But it's Dr. Brandon Gallus. He's from the OCEL. That's the Office for Scientific Engineering Labs in the FDA. And what they're doing is they're working with digital pathology to define certain data sets that you can validate. And when you have a common denominator and general principles for those data sets, you can reuse them over and over in any clinical study or any development of an algorithm without having to go to the FDA when you're going with your medical device itself or with your drug by saying, oh, we have something discovered. This is our validation set. Can we use it? And then the FDA has to review it. It says, yes, no. How did you do it? Now he developed something that you can say, okay, this is a general validation set that can be reused and you don't have to show over and over again that it's a good data set. See, I need to talk about this on the podcast as well. Yeah. <laughs> to make a note. So Mental note. When, yeah. yeah, totally. So when I was working in the translation and research space, like bringing it to the bench. It was work with the genetic data, with the bioinformatics that they would like give us insights to the pathology department. Then we would look for confirmation in the slides stained with certain markers and the markers were already guided by the gene expression. And then we would design algorithms and try to quantify them and try to figure out, okay, can we somehow stratify patients? Can we use this? You mentioned medical devices. Can this then down the road be used as a companion diagnostic. So two technologies, the digitization of the slides itself, which is now non-hurdle, I would say, because we already know that this is okay and there are procedures for that. The other one is tissue image analysis. If you could tell me what are the regulatory concerns or things that you have to consider when you want to use endpoints generated from tissue image analysis for guiding your decisions or guiding your research and like I guess the most the highest regulatory hurdle to guide diagnostic decisions in a clinical trial where do you look up the information how shall I be compliant with this and that's actually a great question because if you look into all the guidance that is out there there is so much with regards to FDA has a lot of guidance for industry 
industry with software as a medical device. So you need to start with that. And of course, the standard things with regards to what is risk, those ISOs you need to include. Now, recently, they have also included some standards, I have to say, that now is being regarded as a recognized standard. So you can reuse that standard in your submission files by saying, okay, we have followed this standard, we are compliant with it. So they trust that method that you use that is okay and validated. Of course, you have to show that that you do that. But having said that, that's something that you can, of course, and need to start off to look for those guidances. I know in Europe, they are now working on a draft act, which is then becoming, of course, the law. And that is on artificial intelligence and how to use that and how to apply it. There's a lot ongoing also within the FDA going back again to, to the US. There is a standard framework already out there that is also in draft. And they're using that also to optimize, like, how can you apply this validation technique, these general principles to any AI tool that has been developed. So is this already available for the general public or is it still not published? Yeah, uh, not yet that, published. that's one in the FDA that's published, but it's draft. Okay. We expect... Like a draft guidance. Yeah, yeah. draft framework, they call it. So it's it, this one is not the guidance. So there's a small nuance again. See, yeah. no, I am not an expert in those nuances. <laughs> Gives you a good, yeah, But that's, that's okay, okay, right? That's why I'm here. I'm asking because I want to include it in the show notes of this episode. So that would be a very good resource. So everybody who's listening, check the show notes. It's going to be there. Okay, good. Yeah, and it's good to ask because, you know, everybody has their own expertise. You now know that it's there. And when you need to know the details, you call out for the regulatory experts and they can guide you in how to apply it. Then with regards to that framework that they're developing, there's also a suggestion in there that you, whatever you change in your device after it has been approved or cleared, if you put that already in your initial submission from your device that you're clearing at that moment, if you say, this is the change that I'm going to apply, this is the method that I'm going to use, these are the acceptance criteria, then the suggestion is that they accept that once you make a change to your device according those principles and those methods, that it goes smoothly through a review process. So I think that's a great advantage because we know how fast AI can change, how fast software and algorithms change. That's the idea, right? We want to be faster. We want to speed up the innovation. That's there. And what else, what I think, how you can use it then in your clinical trials and also in your entire drug development pipeline or in your device development pipeline is actually use the validation principles. Because I know from experience and I also know that the FDA usually looks into like if you're using a device for your endpoint measurements or a variable that you use to build your statistics on and your analysis, then you want to have that device validated. For, of course, that it is a, a device that is being regarded as being giving the correct endpoints or the correct measurements. So it is easier and more efficient for a drug company or for whomever is going to submit the file that the device has already been cleared or approved. Now, if that's not been done... Question. So let's say there is a CHI-67 approved algorithm on the market and you want to use a CHI-67 quantification as your endpoint, then it would be recommended to use this very algorithm and not develop 
your from scratch or yeah. not necessarily? It's, I would say it's the easiest way with less risk. But having said that, I believe that we also are in this stage and at this in this point of time, in this era, we can also collaborate with the FDA and discuss with them. Because if you have your own developed K67 app and you validate it according to your own quality management system and you can show you have verified it, validated according to what it's supposed to be doing, then there's no one who can argue you cannot use it because it all comes down and it sounds easy. And in one way it is easy, but it also had the devil is in the details, but it all comes down to is this device safe? Is it doing what it's supposed to do? And then show me why you believe it's safe. That's actually mm -hmm. do no harm. How do you engage in those discussions with the FDA? Yeah. And I think that that is for a drug company or device company easier than, for example, for a clinical research organization who works in who works for the sponsors like the pharma and the medical device to execute those studies. But what you usually do is you write a pre-submission to the FDA by asking and say, hey, we're seeking your advice. We would like to know if we can use this approach. And then you discuss it with them. For companion diagnostics, that's, of course, the same process. But what the difficulty is, is that you're not only there with your own drug, you're also there with your diagnostic and you have to do it together. And then also within the FDA, it's becoming more complex because now they have to combine indeed the device group with the drug group plus then all the experts, digital health experts. So we see that this is expanding rapidly, but it's key because all the stakeholders are involved and you need to have an architect within the regulations who can understand all these dimensions and piece it all together, making sure that the puzzle is right. It's an architecture actually architecture structure having an architect a regulatory yes, architect i never looked at it that way it totally is parallel to an it infrastructure where you have to know the systems you need to know the workarounds you need to know what matches with what no wonder you need a regulatory expert <laughs> and i think this is a good point to mention that in addition to all the other things that you're doing, you also offer regulatory advice. So if anybody who's listening is at the point where they need regulatory advice, this is your architect. <laughs> this is the person who can guide you from wherever you are in your process to wherever you want to get in a compliant manner. And in addition, I want to add, it's also because <laughs> of that architect, you, what the advantage is, is that you also need to understand the clinical drug development pipeline, the medical device development pipeline. So having all these levels of expertise and the competence skills and pharma, regulatory quality, knowing about GCP, knowing about the quality system regulations, all those kind of things, that's all required. And I see experts come into the drug development pipeline at different points in the pipeline, and you get very focused on what your expertise is and what you're contributing to, but it's not your task to oversee the whole process. And then a person like you oversees the process and can guide the process from point A to B to C to Z. So that's, you're a bridge, you're the bridge. And thanks for bringing it up because what I think also, well, I'm a strong believer, and there's also, by the way, a paper about it from the DPA, is that you have the total product life cycle of a medical device, actually also, of course, from a drug. Their need to know is that you do this indeed as a team. You have all your different experts, but involving each other from the infant state, that is crucial. You need to have your team in place. So I think also bringing up digital pathology that brings people together because thinking about what do you do with digital pathology? You need to have 
a pathologist, you need to have toxicology, you need to have the lab, you need to have the regulatory person who knows, can I submit this to an FDA? You need to have someone from clinical development understanding like, oh, if you did that there, then we don't have to do it in a clinical study or we have to be careful and implement in the clinical study. So I think it's saying that it's a team effort and that comes back also to how the Philips medical device was cleared. It's always a team effort. You need to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And again, I believe that is mostly done by the regulatory person knowing all the things like how can we optimize that submission if you have this intended use then maybe you should do that in your verification and you can leave it out of your validation and that's how you can be smart and accelerate. I totally agree so I was part of a validation GLP good laboratory practice validation effort of primary digital pathology read for preclinical pathology at Charles River Laboratories and the regulatory person was my go-to person to ask can I even do it? You know you have all those ideas based on your expertise and how you can prove based on your expertise that something is working. If it's not going to fly with the regulators, like don't even start. Yeah. I had a really good experience, this team experience. And like you say, digital pathology is everyone. Patho- it's called pathology. So like the first person you would think pathologist and that's it. That's so not it. And that's why Digital Pathology Association has members from all different aspects of digital pathology. So let's talk about your presidency. How was it to be a president? How did one become a president? And what did you do during your presidency? Yeah, actually, within the DPA, within the Digital Pathology Association, I became a member in 2011. That's when I also started with Digital Pathology at Philips. And that's where I also started to join the Digital Pathology Association Regulatory Standards Task Force and was working on that and making sure, of course, with the wholesale imaging validation guidelines, those kind of things we did as a collaboration. And then became part of the board and taking part of discussions and, you know, memberships. And then at a certain moment, and of course, there is a opportunity to think about, do I want to get in the executive committee? And then you can apply for that every year. We we rotate the presidency and you start as a secretary and then you gradually you go into the presidency role. I applied for that role of the being the secretary. I think it was five years before you become the president, might also be four years before you become the president. Long-term plan. You need to learn all the ins and outs, right? And then then you are becoming the president. And I think that's also good because then you have continuity in your executive committee team. And also that's why I'm still there as the immediate past president to whatever is there that I ensure that, you know, what I've done that is not being lost and that is transferred to the next president. So I'm also very happy that this can be transferred into the capable hands of Dr. Pantanovic. He's the current president Mm -hmm. and he has his goals, of course. And I had the goals last year. I was focusing most on collaboration, building a foundation, a network to connect all the elements for precision medicine. And with that, also linking that to reimbursements. So those two Mm -hmm. topics were highest on the agenda. And I also, if I look at that, we have accomplished. How did you do it? Yeah, we have accomplished a lot. So thanks for asking. It was really a fantastic year. I really enjoyed it. And I'm very proud and more so grateful that I have been able to serve this community community and being then the president of a board and of a DPA who accomplished a lot. We had pathology visions and what I noticed is there was a general vibe, there was a buzz, we 
were sold out with over I yeah, know over 700 yes, people almost 800 and also the booth spaces they were all sold out and when you were walking there I really felt that buzz of excitement of people talking together sharing information sharing knowledge and I was so appreciative of that because I'm a strong believer in when you share knowledge you help each other to perform it's not giving away your competitive advantage it's just helping each other to penetrate that market and to help the community that's how I see it and I believe now with having seen that this past year and of course we have to see how it goes but I see a turning point digital pathology is putting the lab at a very different perspective it's now in the middle of all you know we will change lab medicine to everyone's benefits everyone's advantages and what we are doing with the DPA we're connecting these elements and with that we're growing the network we help guiding care providers what to test when to test you know those kind of things and that also contributes to okay what is then the clinical utility how can we get there so that contributes to that reimbursement and we collaborate for example going back to increasing that collaboration we also collaborate with a lot of allied societies and one of them is for example the cap now we, we mm-hmm. collaborate with them we collaborate with us cap with api many more but we're there for each other we have collaborated efforts we identify what is needed so that we have mutual benefits for the community to create synergy and going down back to reimbursement is also where cap had a major role they arranged that we now have these reimbursement codes in category three code yeah yes the code yeah they're finally here <laughs> so for those who are outside of the u.s the reimbursement in the u.s is based on having a code for a procedure or for something you do for a patient if you don't have a code even if it's like the best thing and it's gonna save their lives you might have problems with getting reimbursement for that yes so <laughs> I educated myself a little bit on the codes and I was pretty surprised how many codes there are for just scanning slides Esther. yes can you elaborate <laughs> on that I had the two like why do they make it so complex that's, but you know what that's what it is but they are there they're there and with having said like that we have that collaboration with the cap CAP there was a great talk also by the CAP members and he presented how they came to this reimbursement code and how it actually works how to apply for such a code and I think that was a great presentation and also very well received by the community having said that we worked mainly on those collaborations and the reimbursement trajectory I also realized the reimbursement trajectory we just started so there's so much more Mm -hmm. to do that's something that I personally am very interested in and I'm still working on and there is a podcast by the DPA the Digital Pathology Association has the podcast also beyond the scope and there is an episode dedicated to the code. So I'm going to link to this as well for everybody who wants to understand this a little bit better. It's complex. But if you want to be active in this space and actually be financially viable, this is your mean to that end. So definitely go ahead and check the link as well. So Esther, as I said at the beginning, not the first female president, but you were a female leader in the digital pathology space. This is March and 8th of March is the International Women's Day. So I am inviting women leaders in the digital pathology space and you're an important 
leader in this space. How is it to be a female leader? Did you ever have a situation where you were made conscious of your gender? Did it in any way affect how you do things, where you show up, how you show up? Tell me about your experience as a female leader in the digital pathology space. Yeah, actually, what I would like to, it's it's a rhetorical question, but what I'm always thinking, (laughs) and I I give you a little bit of, of history as well, what I'm always thinking, like, why do we need to ask this question? That's a rhetorical question, but I want to put it out there because I'm thinking also back to in my professional career that I was once offered a course somewhere to say, okay, this is a course for women leaders. And of course, I was grateful and appreciative that I could go to that course because I was selected. But on the other hand, I felt also like, why do women have to go to a course? Why is it not men? So having said that, I no longer ask myself that because you never get the answer. So what I'm all about Mm -hmm. and what I would like to share here, and that's what I find more important, is equal rights. And most for all, that we all respect each other for who we are and what we do. doesn't matter what position you're in. If you're a leader, if you're no leader, if you are working in digital pathology, if you're an engineer, if you're a regulator, it doesn't matter if you're the janitor of the building. You're as important to help the entire team to function. Because can you imagine if the janitor is not there? You know, who switched on the lights? So you're you're not not those in. kind of things. So we cannot get things done. So I believe we all do this we have the same purpose it might be in a different area of expertise but by sharing knowledge and doing as such we function as a team and with that we build that foundation and you have heard me talking about foundations before so with that we build a foundation where we help to grow where we build trust and with that you get the best out each one of us and only then we can be successful. Only then we can serve the patient. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for those great insights. Before we finish, I want to let the listeners know if they would need your advice as a regulatory advisor, regulatory consultant, where can they find you? What's the way to contact you? And I'm going to leave this in the show notes as well. That's, that's perfectly fine. So I'm on LinkedIn. So you can use my LinkedIn. There's also a link to a YouTube channel. And I'm trying to keep that one updated with some helpful guidances, more information videos so to say. So it's not really built out yet, but I just started this and I really enjoy doing so. So I would say go to the LinkedIn page. That's the easiest. That's where you can find everything about me and how to get in contact with me. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm going to definitely link your LinkedIn and link your YouTube. And if any of the digital pathology place YouTube channel subscribers are interested in the regulatory aspect, then I'm going to point you to that channel. Thank you so much. And I wish you have a great day. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks to you too. And wish you a great day as well. You stay till the end. And that lets me know that you're a real digital pathology trailblazer. Thank you for this. And I know I threw a lot of resources at you during the episode. There are all going to be linked in the description below. But there is one more resource that I need to tell you about. Do you remember the live event from last year, bridging the gap between pathology and computer science with the computational pathology group from Radboud University Medical Center? Now, all the lectures together with all audio files and transcripts are gathered for you in one ad-free place on a special portal. You can view them, listen to them, read them in a distraction-free environment and get the most out of it even if you are there live. And you know what? You can share it with whoever you want because it's there for you forever for free. Click the link to this resource to get instant access to all the lectures. 
and I talk to you in the next episode.